0: In this episode, we look at how the polyvagal theory can be the foundation for good therapy. My name is Justin Sinceri.
1: And I am Mercedes Corona.
0: We are licensed marriage and family therapists obsessed with learning about and applying the polyvagal theory.
1: Welcome to episode 23 of the Polyvagal Podcast.
0: We'll be doing our topic. We have a couple of announcements. We do want you to know this should be a safe episode. I don't see any triggering uh, things here in this episode. But, you know, put yourself first just something we like to put out there at the outset. Before we talk about the polyvagal theory and how it applies to therapy, we want to kind of set the table here for you. There are four factors that influence therapy outcomes according to the American Psychological Association. We'll have a link in the show notes that I will direct you to more information on this. The first one is things that happen outside of therapy. So this would be family dynamics, cultural stuff, neighborhood, school stuff, just all the things that happen outside of therapy have obviously a lot to do with how um, how someone, how the outcome for someone's life, their life satisfaction, if they're meeting their goals or not. And these are things that as therapists, we have pretty much no control over whatsoever. We can plan, we can give homework, we can do coping skills, journaling, you know. Ultimately, these things are out of our hands though. So that's the first thing. One out of four is, the things that happen outside of therapy. The second thing, the second factor that influences therapy outcomes is, or are, the effects of what we expect to help or not help. This is the placebo effect, which is it, it helps because we expect it to. This applies not just to medication, but also to people entering therapy that they expect therapy to help or they expect a certain technique to help or a certain modality to help, and therefore it does help. Uh, that we're in a, be the fact that they're in a healing environment, or that they're with a licensed professional, there's degrees on the wall, all of these have a placebo effect to them, which is they just sort of help just because they're there. Even the evaluation, diagnosis, assessments, discussing expectations, all of these have an inherent value to help someone, I'll say heal, I don't like the word heal, but I'll say heal, or to improve. I've had I remember this was true in uh, working an outpatient. There were times where I did the assessment. It's like a two-hour process. We talk about all kinds of stuff, right? They come back the next time, they're like, I'm good. And that was it. They they didn't need further therapy. Just being in that environment and maybe saying things out loud. But really, it's like being with a safe person, safe environment, expecting to be helped. That was all they needed, and they were good to go. And this means that for therapists, if you just do the fundamentals of therapy you be compassionate, have positive expectations, work with the client, if you're welcoming and you can be the expert, go ahead. But if you just do the fundamentals, there's a whole bunch of placebo stuff that's going to help us out. Just don't don't uh sabotage <laughs> all the good stuff that's going on
1: by taking off your shoes and eating peanut butter.
0: Exactly. The third Factor to influence therapy outcomes are the specific therapy techniques. This is, these are the modalities, techniques, all the acronyms we like to use, CBT, DBT, EMDR, uh, EFT, all these acronyms, all these modalities, techniques. Um, for, so for therapists, what do we do with that? We don't wing it, use the techniques appropriately, discuss the uses of these techniques uh, and the benefits of them, and even the potential drawbacks with the client. And be very transparent about these techniques. So, these things, this is the third factor that can influence therapy outcomes. And the fourth one, which is where we're gonna tie in the polyvagal theory, the fourth factor are the common factors. These are, this is a paraphrasing from uh, the APA. The main curative component based on decades of research is the therapeutic relationship. This is the foundation of everything else that we do. And the APA listed empathy, warmth, and the therapeutic relationship. And within the therapeutic relationship, there's tons of like components of that. These common factors associate more highly with positive therapeutic outcomes than the specialized interventions do. So the specialized interventions are helpful. They're great. But the common factors, empathy, warmth, therapeutic relationship, these associate more highly with positive therapeutic outcomes than the actual interventions do. The example here would be the stuff that we're going to talk about, which is how the polyvagal theory applies. So the common factors, this is, it's like the therapeutic, like I've said, like the therapeutic relationship, empathy, warmth, compassion. Yeah. If you don't have these things, the specific therapy techniques aren't going to do a whole lot, I don't think. Like we had, we had the example where... Remember we one of our bad therapy examples I think from the last episode was that someone just, actually a couple of them were like, the person just started to do EMDR. Just like jumped into it, yeah. The bilateral stimulation, but there wasn't a solid relationship at all. So it was just the person doing things or instructing the client to do something, but it didn't, there was no foundation of relationship um, to build off of. So it didn't go anywhere. It was, it was not helpful whatsoever. That's why they say that the main curative component of their, of a, of the therapeutic process are these common factors. And this is based on lots and lots of research. That's why, so as a therapist, that's why I focus, I pretty much focus entirely on these things. This is what in therapy is, is am I doing the basics? Am I doing the fundamentals? Am I building relationship? Um, the techniques and whatnot, I don't put nearly as much emphasis into. And I, I do like, if you looked at my sessions, if I were to record them and you watch them, someone would say, oh, you're doing a CBT thing or you're doing this or that. And I'd be like, all right, fine. But, did I, have a good, did I do a good job listening? Did that person leave feeling like they, you yeah. know, someone cares? Did that, that person feel like someone understood? Because that's what truly helps. And that, you know, the techniques and all that, that's fine.
1: Mm-hmm. Unless, no, you're right, though, because the example that you gave about... What?
0: No worksheets, though.
1: No work... Never. I don't,
0: I don't do worksheets.
1: I don't do that very much anymore. I used to, but doesn't jive with me um no the example you gave about like what you focus on in therapy that's kind of what i do too is i focus on really building the relationship and really doing the like listening and and being present and just sitting and existing with the client to the point where like when i was more of a baby clinician i would start doubting like oh my gosh i didn't do enough but Mm. I, i really believe that you know just just the therapeutic relationship in and of itself when you're really really like enforcing that and reinforcing it and strengthening it. I really Mm -hmm. think that in and of itself is therapeutic by itself because how many people that we meet as clients don't have that in their lives, a safe person who will listen and validate and normalize and, and provide the unconditional positive regard. They don't have that. So that in and of itself is very healing.
0: This is the tie in with the polyvagal theory is that this, the polyvagal theory is the science of relationships. We focus a lot on the danger cues and dropping down the ladder, and how do I get out of the ladder, you know, back up the ladder, how do I get unstuck, and we focus a lot on that, I think, and then I'll, you know, uh, of course people are going to go there, but really the polyvagal theory is not just about how we respond to danger, but it's also how we connect to other human beings, or other mammals. Um, it's not just about the danger cues, it's also about safety and building relationships, and that's therapy, that's like that ties directly into the therapeutic relationship. So the first thing that therapists that we need to do is to provide a safe environment. Of course, this is like obvious. We have to have a safe environment, and like if you have one that's like nicely designed with, you know, the right pictures or plant potted plants, the right
1: color, the right sure. textures.
0: That's all. I well worked and really good.
1: hard on my private practice office. Did you? I did. I'm I'm a big believer in in how like your environment yeah. looks, it'll affect how you feel.
0: Definitely. Having a safe environment is fantastic. There's um, often some limitations to this. The private practice setting is not the only one where therapy happens.
1: Yes, it's very different than what it looks like, say, at at the school that I work at. Yeah. Where we're actively in construction right now since last year. Yeah. There's... Uh, actual tractors and bulldozers and cranes lifting stuff and gravel flying anyway you don't need a description but yeah it's really different
0: i don't think the majority of us work in private practice i, I did a, a pretty in-depth look at who's doing private practice in this city and i made a list mm-hmm. and there's like i'll say 40ish that i could you know put on my list but where we work there's going to be 30 very soon that's 30 just in our setting and 40 Oh, that's right, yeah, forty. So right there we've already matched the you know, right. right. And the, but you know, outpatient mental health, all the all the um all the places that provide like the nonprofit agencies.
1: Nonprofit social agencies, social workers, fostering like, like there's
0: tons of therapists out there that yeah. are not in the yeah. private practice setting. And so that private practice model with the perfect office and everything, that's not how most of us work, I don't think. So the school environment is gonna look a lot different than outpatient county environment, which is going to look a lot different than private practice, like in an affluent community, which is going to look a lot different than juvenile hall, which is going to look a lot different than a substance abuse, outpatient or residential group home. Uh, Many of these, I think between the two of us, we've kind of covered all these, right? I think we have. I think so.
1: I think so. Because the ones I haven't done, I think you have done.
0: How many times have you worked in a storage room? I've done that numerous times.
1: So, I mean, so many times at so many schools. In yeah.
0: schools, yeah, school, Closets yeah. schools
1: and book rooms. There was a school
0: I went to, a high school, where every time I went, there was like a new box in the room. And like <laughs> half of the room was cardboard boxes filled with like teacher stuff. And then eventually yeah. they, they kicked me out of the room. But um, there was a school I, I started at and they wanted me to meet with students in a closet. It was a closet. And inside of this closet was like wiring and internet wiring for the whole school.
1: Oh, nice. Um, it was
0: tiny. And I'm like, no, I can't. I, there's no way I'm going to meet yeah. with like a female client who's been sexually traumatized in this tiny dark room. No, that's that's not happening. Right. So we, we have to be able to say no, but that's a whole, whole separate issue. But, uh, you know, a lot of times we do the best of what we can. I've met with uh, people in other people's offices. Te- I've used classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, I've literally used garages, storage rooms. I've, I've done therapy outside in a park. Mm-hmm. That was interesting.
1: We have to get creative and you have to make it confidential how you can. So like walking outside, like go far away from where the other kids are.
0: Well, even if you have to be creative and like we do offer to meet with like during summer. Um, I know we may meet with a kid in in the community because they might not be able to make it to the school anymore because the bus isn't picking them up or whatever. And we, you know, of course, it's not a confidential setting, but if we're meeting with them at a Starbucks or a McDonald's or whatever, that we do the, obviously the best we can. We're not going to talk, announce things out loud and stuff like that. Right? right. So no matter where we're at, we have to make the best out of it that we can. But ideally we have a safe environment, which is polyvagal theory, You know, the, reducing the amount of danger cues as much as possible. is going to be more helpful to the therapeutic process. And, you know, it, in the school, like the traffic noises, fans, footsteps. There was a, I had a session with uh a young person, and um, he had an issue with the principal. So, in in our session, he heard the principal has these loud th- footsteps, like boom, 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 and very loud voice too. Very, you know, very big presence. We heard him walk past our room, and the kid once the once the principal walked past the room, the kid like jumped out of his seat and was like, "I gotta get some water," and like he just couldn't wait to get out of the room. So the yeah, all these yeah. things like the environment has a lot of impact on the therapeutic process and no matter where we're at we do the best we can Um, we 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 deal with kids right outside the door screaming uh classes going on people are walking to and fro police on the campus uh, staff potentially well actually for you staff barging in right
1: but not not even just currently in the job i have now but going back to the point before about being in like a storage room or whatever thing on a school campus people, it's it's like community space it's public space to them so well I need something from the storage room it doesn't matter what's going on in the storage room I'm going to go into the storage room and get what I need and I just you know I give them the look like this is private it's confidential and they're like oh no you can keep talking Mm -mm." (laughs) so the kid and I are just like Looking at each other for two minutes, three minutes, just waiting for this person to leave. Cause I'm going to respect their privacy. If they want to keep talking, I'll definitely listen. I'm not going to add anything to it because I'm not going to break confidentiality that way. But yeah, I've had staff barging in and at the, at the current placement I have, I'm at now. I've made, I've made it very clear to the staff that I work with that session time is sacred time and it is not to be interrupted unless there's an active emergency going on, like, that I'm the only person that could help with kind right, of a thing, right. which right. has happened, but, but it's, it's legitimate where it's like, you know, so-and-so is making suicidal statements and trying to kill somebody else. Okay. Then I'm going to come out of session yeah. for that, but uh, you know, to help
0: point being is the environmental safety is huge. And there's tons of things in the environment that we may not even think about that are danger cues or get people off the course of feeling safe in session. That could be peanut butter and, And bare feet. It could be like a a heater kicking on, making some horrible noise. It could be thin walls and hearing someone outside the room. It could be a ton of things that are danger cues. Smells. Could be smells, sure. Yeah, so environmental cues of danger and so many of these we're not going to know about. But on top of that, the co-regulation from the therapist to the client obviously is extremely important. Us having positive... I'm sorry, us having effective co regulation can dampen the impacts of these environmental cues. I remember um,
1: when you say the word dampen, when it, that it can dampen the effect of the environment. So you're saying when the environment might not be so safe, my own co regulation and sending of safety cues can help to reduce the negative impact of the environment, possible negative impact?
0: I think so. Yeah. Like in the school setting, how many times do we hear these horrible yeah. bells go off? And they're jarring. They can be very jarring and they they can bring someone down the ladder. But if I can speak to and say, oh, let's just wait a second and we kind of laugh it off. Now that's not going to have as much of an impact versus versus like trying to talk over it, which is just going to make the situation worse. And if I'm raising my voice, that's another danger cue, you know, versus like, oh, let's pause a second. Sorry about that. And isn't that annoying or whatever? Then it's the impact is going to be reduced. So co-regulation, obviously part of co-regulation is to provide listening with safe and social cues, the eye crinkles, uh, because when you're in a safe and social place, you are able to use eye crinkles, which convey to the other mammal that you're listening, that you're in a safe and social place to be able to listen. If you drop down the ladder, you lose access to being able to use your eye crinkles, which is going to convey to the other nervous system that you're, uh, you're, you're now in a dangerous place So there's danger nearby. You're picking up on danger that they're not. Uh, Smiles, being able to smile if you're down the ladder, you're not going to smile exactly. But if you're safe and social, you'll be able to smile.
1: Or it won't be a genuine smile, which people can tell. And I was just reading another article about that. But yeah, that people can feel it and they can tell when it's a, even if it's not like a a conscious thing, but they can tell when it's a genuine smile.
0: There's smiling, but then there's also like smiling with like your head, head tilted. Using your head and your neck is more of a safe and social kind of thing. Like if you tilt your head and listen to someone, you know, with eye crinkles, I'm like, like my God, that's just like overload of safety right there, right? And if you can do that with a smile even, you're, you're, yeah. you're gold. So It was
1: something about the muscles. The article I read, something about oh, yeah. the muscles around your, when a genuine smile, yeah. it changes the muscles. And so your eyes, I think it has to do with the eye crinkles. It's, it's exactly again. the same thing. Yeah, Because yeah. when you're, it, when it's not a genuine smile, when it's a fake smile or whatever, it yeah. doesn't quite
0: reach. So, eye crinkle, smiles, prosody, which is, again, being able prosody. to... There you go. That's prosody. Uh, being curious with genuine interest as a therapist. This is a safety cube. Curiosity is something you do when you're safe and social versus evaluation. Um, this is something that I, I noticed for myself. Um, like, I, I went on this hike with my family recently. And I, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to use this opportunity to ground myself and be really safe and social and work my way up if I'm down, right, the ladder, right? So I'm like, all right, here we go. So I'm I'm, wa- I'm like hiking and I'm like analyzing and evaluating and I'm like, is, is it working? Am I working my way up? <laughs> and then I'm like, you know what, it's probably, I'm evaluating, I'm in this place of evaluation and judgment versus just simply being in the moment and experiencing it. And so once I did that, I felt you know a lot better. So evaluation versus curiosity. Um, to be curious with how your body feels, not evaluating how your body feels. For, as a therapist, to be curious about the client rather than evaluating the client. And to me, this is a like a diagnosis versus how are you, like what state are you in kind of thing. And I, yeah. I hope to see that change in the mental health field at some point where we are curious about someone's state versus diagnosing them based on symptoms, which I think is more evaluative. And not in a positive way. Not in a curious yeah. way that's a whole separate episode though
1: this curiosity and genuine interest thing is it's funny because i i feel sometimes i feel like a different type of human than non-therapists and i i mean this in a completely positive good way but and i and i experience this with the kids because i work you know i work with kids and kids are just the greatest they're so honest in their reactions more honest than adults are and the curiosity and genuine interest thing it's something that i I realize it's one of the reasons why I love polyvagal theory so much because it validates so much of the stuff I already do as a therapist. Yeah. Because I'm awesome. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's, it's something that I just naturally do with the kids. Like I show a lot of curiosity and I show a lot of interest in, in the things that they're doing, just whatever activities or actions or whatever thing where other adults don't, teachers yeah. or staff or parents oh, right, or whoever. Right, right. And so this is something that I, I've, It's when I feel like therapists are not regular humans, we're different humans, because they'll say, Miss Mercedes, you're so different than the other grownups. Or that's not, you know, like they'll give me a funny look and they'll say, do you you really want to know? Like you're really asking me that question as opposed to like the rhetorical question of what are you doing? What were you thinking? It's this change in dynamic and you can feel the shift of when I first get to know, or when I'm first getting to know one of the clients, and I'm, again, I'm talking about kids right now. When I first get to know them, I can feel them shift down to a danger place, like they're becoming defensive, like, oh no, here we go again. And then they look at my face oh, and they yeah. look at my body, bodily cues, and they totally. realize that I'm not, I don't mean it in an, a, an evaluative, judgmental way. I'm genuinely curious, and I'm genuinely asking them a question. And then it completely settles them down, and I can see them Almost, almost visibly jump to the safe and social place. So it's a really, it's a really powerful piece of the co-regulation. I think
0: I find that with uh, working with kids who are are, are using substances or drinking, them. and I used to work in substance abuse setting where the goal was to get them to stop using, and lots of evaluation and the goals were always to stop using, which makes sense, of course. Now I'm coming at it from an angle of more of a, you know, genuine curiosity and what role does this play in your life? And, and, um, that really seems to be opening things up more than it used to, because it wasn't a place of curiosity. It was a place of how do we get this to stop? And that was back when I first started doing therapy and now it's a place of curiosity and what, what, um, need is this fulfilling or what, uh, what is this providing for you? what Like there's something this is you're getting out of this, what is it, you know, sort of place. Which is not—it's yeah. curiosity. Like, like it's, curiosity is not evaluation or judgment. Yeah. Whereas before, I think it was just based on you know our funders and what we had to do. Uh, but it's also for me, this is uh, curiosity versus evaluation. Uh, doing play therapy, I I, re- I used to do a lot of play therapy when I worked with younger ones, and if you come from a place of curiosity, you'll be narrating what they're doing. Like, oh, this this toy is submerged in the water, or is. Underneath all the sand or this toy seems to be looking on or uh, or I'm sorry, this toy over here is up above everybody else or whatever versus, you know, that's the wrong way to play. Let's keep the toys in the sand. Let's do this or that. And that's more of an evaluative rule-based sort of thing. And the last thing with, I'm sorry, the last thing here with providing listening and safe and social cues is compassion to show that you care versus empathy. This is a really interesting distinction. Maybe is worth... A deeper discussion, but uh, Dr. Porter's brought this up in my interview with him. He draws a line between empathy and compassion. Empathy is the ability to feel what someone else feels. But he says, as therapists, we need to come from a place of compassion. When we feel empathy, that can oftentimes show through on our face. So if we hear someone's in pain, that we're going to show that on our face because we're going to feel it along with them. But with compassion... You can still feel empathy, but you're going to come from a place of caring, and of, of you know curiosity, and of wanting the best for the client, and of still providing those safe and social cues. Does that make sense? Um, so yeah. So it's it's like recognizing your empathy, but not exactly allowing the empathy to come through on your face and in your body, and it's really staying in the place of genuine care and and concern for the person in the room. And to remain compassionate hopefully that makes sense
1: yeah it makes sense i'm i'm distracted by a thought that i it's a conversation for another day really yeah. but i'm distracted by the idea that i have a hard time with having the definition of empathy be so specific because i think when i think of empathy i guess i've always understood it to be what you're describing as compassion but i, I don't know that's i was just distracted by that thought because i i get it i i uh, I get what Dr. Porges is trying to say with that. I guess I've just always thought of empathy as not just feeling what you feel, but sh- but giving you the compassion about it. Like it
0: goes hand in hand for you. Yeah. Okay.
1: But I, I get that what he's trying to say is that when, when you feel what the client feels, maybe you're not in, in the ideal state to provide the support and the help that they need in that moment right i get i get that that's what he's saying
0: there was a, a moment where i'm gonna share as little, little as i can here there was a moment where i learned like a new level of the trauma that was being shared with me and it brought me to this place where i was honestly kind of pissed off because I, it was like the depth of it was like oh my god like you survived this thing and this person was not there to support you and actually made made things worse
1: it made things worse in session?
0: Uh, no, no. The person in their life may have been making things worse. Oh. And so I, I the, what I said was, like, you have to be mad at this person. Because I was mad. It, so I came from my empathy. And so I said I said it out loud and I instantly regretted it. And li- I, Really? I did, yeah. And at the end of the session, I, I said, you know what? I said this thing earlier on. I didn't make a big deal out, out of it in the moment. But at the end of the session, I said, I said this thing earlier on that I think came more from me. And I think I, I was a little bit off there as far as where you were and what you needed. The client was completely fine with it. When it came from compassion, I was more able to stay in the moment and continue to listen without interjecting my own level of kind of outrage at what had, had been happening.
1: I realized that I do it. I do that a lot, actually. And that's a. I think that's a perfect example for something that I do specifically the anger, because when I've had, and lots of different kids, specifically some of the kids I work with at the school site that you're mostly based at. So the older kids, um, but I'll be listening to their information and their stories and I'll I'll feel myself getting upset and I'll say, I'll say something like that. And I see now I'm, <laughs> let me complete a sentence and a thought. Um, I'm worried now that maybe my reactions have impacted them. In a negative way, but I've never known that to be the case because I'll say, wow, that makes me feel really angry or I'm I'm feeling angry for you. You have either told me that you're angry yeah. or you must be feeling angry yourself. And it does seem to normalize it for them. Um, I am second guessing it now and I'm worried that i have not caught on to some cues of, you know, negative impact. I'm hoping not, though. It wasn't. I feel like so I, I feel like I would have picked up on that.
0: I think Well, and if you have a strong rapport, I don't think it's an issue. Yeah. Like that moment was not a huge issue whatsoever. I think it was probably a bigger issue for me, but I felt it was, I should bring it up. Yeah. And it was a non-issue.
1: Yeah. Well, and I make sure, cause you said you brought it up and I make sure to bring it up and, and be clear. And I'll say, you know, I, I mentioned that I'm angry and I want to be clear that I'm not angry with you. I'm angry yeah. for you. And if I feel like I need to kind of elaborate a little bit, I will. Yeah. But But yeah, see, I don't know. See, again, I, that's where I have a hard time with the idea of empathy being defined so specifically.
0: But when you say, when you, when we recognize that it came from me, that to me, that, that is compassion. Like, oh, okay. Like I recognize that my empathy, that I was feeling what you were feeling. But because of my high regard for you and my care for you, I coming from a compassionate place is this is what I did. This may have thrown you off course. You know what I mean? Let, let me make sure I'm focusing on you now. I'm now I'm back in my compassionate place. That's what it means to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm here for you. I still I, I can still feel what you're feeling and allow that to happen. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna allow that to take over the session. Or or derail. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So That's so how then again, it. yeah, yeah. So then yeah, for me then the empathy has always gone hand in hand with the compassion. I guess.
0: Okay. I think it's worth to break down. I think it's worth it to break that down and to kind yeah. of separate those and to make sure we're doing I think handling empathy appropriately and then also being compassionate as a way to
1: yeah
0: kind of handle the empathy
1: Yeah because I think as as you were talking I was thinking if if it was just empathy and and no context or anything else around it I see how that would be damaging for the client Potentially. It could be, yeah. And for the relationship. But but you're right. When I have... I'm using myself as an example. When I've used empathy versus compassion, it's always been wrapped in compassion. Like, it's been empathy and then let's bring it back to you or here's why I'm angry. I'm angry for you and da-da-da. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah. All right. So, co-regulation on top of environmental safety, of course. And the third part of this is modeling appropriate behaviors.
1: This goes a long way with kids. I think it goes a long way with any clients, but I work mainly with kids. And one of the things that I get a lot is, um, you know, Miss Mercedes, you, you said that you're mad, but you don't look mad or it doesn't like if you hadn't said you were mad, I wouldn't know that you were mad. And so I'll take that opportunity to, to say, well, here's, here's what I'm angry about or here's what it looks like when I'm angry, but this is also what it looks like to be angry and appropriate at the same time. And that's kind of a really specific example, but I think modeling appropriate behaviors is really important in, in the co-regulation thing, because it's another example of you as a safe person. And so for example, again, just going back to my example, I'm angry, but I won't hurt you or I'm angry, but you don't need to fear me in this moment. Or I'm angry and I will communicate with you, and there won't be any question about what the therapist is angry about. At you know that kind of But even of
0: stuff. in our setting, or a lot of our settings, they watch us. Like in in the school setting, like they see us not just in session Absolutely. but outside. So they they see how we interact Absolutely. with our coworkers and other kids and whatnot. So uh, modeling appropriate behavior, like th- the therapy doesn't stop within that hour. Absolutely. If you have an hour with the kid, but. It, it continues. So modeling is part of, I think, part of the therapeutic process.
1: And I think not that all therapists have this opportunity, but I know that I have the opportunity. I, I say to people, I spend six hours a day with these kids. I spend the entire school day with them. It doesn't mean I'm side by side with this child every single day, all day, six hours a day. But they see me in the environment. They see me walking in and out of their classrooms. They see me walking around at recess and, and they'll call me out too. And Mm -hmm. usually they call me out in a good way. Like, Miss Mercedes, you said you were angry, but I didn't see you yell at anybody. Or or sometimes, I shouldn't say this, but it kind of makes me smile a little bit. They'll point out other adults and they'll say, they didn't do what you did. They really yelled at somebody, you know, some kid. And so, but it's nice to see because they're starting to put those things together and and again if i'm using appropriate behaviors and modeling that for them it just reinforces the idea that i'm a safe person and also i practice what i preach which is another form of safety huge it's it's honesty and truthfulness and transparency versus secrecy and and you know suspicion which is something that they might be more familiar with in their personal lives in their home lives
0: it totally is like the the families they come from say family first but don't act that way so yes. absolutely the next part here is a willingness to work with your clients. We talked a lot in the past few episodes about therapy happening to clients, but therapy needs to happen with the clients. The first part of that is to be humble. Like we have to be willing to take in what clients are saying to us. But being coming from a place of humility is gonna, I think, allow healthy co-regulation to happen versus a place of like expertise and what I say is it. That's not healthy co-regulation. Being coming from a place of humility or feeling like we're equals in the room. That's to me. That's a. It's gonna set you up for a stronger co-regulation. Um, there was a kid I was working with, who, I I, I always give the kids permission at, at or anyone I work with at the beginning, like session one, if I'm talking and you want me to shut up, you can tell me to shut up. Like I'll be okay with that. And yeah, I, I give I do them that too. yeah complete permis- permission to to give me any kind of feedback. And if you want me to to shut up and listen, I will do that. And so there was a, there was a student who I kept interrupting him. And we had a really strong relationship. So I—I I was it was more of like a back and forth kind of thing. But there were times where he'd be like, no, Justin, you told me to remind you. Just listen. And so I'd bite my tongue That's and be awesome. like, all right, dude. Yep, you're right. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but that happened a few times. But we had a really strong relationship. So it was non-issue. And it was actually really good for him to speak up and tell someone to listen. Because I don't think he got that outside of session. So I think yes. I think we were kind of mirroring what happened in real life. But he was able to speak up for it. And then toward the end, he, he told me that. And I'm like, no, you listen to this time. Because it, it was time for him to like hear something. And I'm like, this is gone. No, you need to hear something now. And that was where actually some huge change happened after that moment where I was like, you know what, dude? I, like, I get it. But no, no, no. Hold up now. I need to say something. And that, that was really more of like a meeting in the middle sort of moment. It was, really, yeah. it was really, really good, honestly. And from there, it was more of a, it felt more, even more equal in a way. Or like a more of a joining, you know? But uh, yeah, giving your client's permission to uh, tell you to get off your high horse.
1: Absolutely. It's a good thing. And they kind of love it. Especially again, thinking about kids and, and teenagers. How many times do they have the opportunity to tell an adult that the adult is wrong and the adult actually listens, validates their ideas and their thoughts and says, you know what? You're absolutely right. They just don't get that. and And it's not about... Like adults versus kids or vice versa. It's just about people being people and showing these kids and these teens that they deserve the exact same type of respect that I deserve. Just because I'm the grown up in the room doesn't mean that I get to be treated better or differently than you do being a 10 year old kid or whatever. No. I think it's a really big thing and they, they're so not used to it. It really surprises them when I apologize for, for something. I think that's a really big thing that you can do when as far as we're talking about being humble, is apologizing for your mistakes. They they don't know what that looks like from an adult. And it's another way that we can show them again, practicing what you preach, being the safe person. I wrote on the outline, when clients point out that I'm wrong, I've just, I've got similar examples as yours. Like I'll tell them, you tell me if I'm wrong. You tell me if I said it wrong or you tell me if I'm not listening. You tell me if I'm talking too much. And at first they don't, at first they don't really do that especially because I work with younger kids. And so, you know, there's very much that dynamic of, you know, you got to listen to the adult. But once the rapport has been built a little bit, then they'll see. Because I'll t- I, I'll remind them almost every session, like, you you tell me if I, if I didn't do the thing I said I would do, or you tell me if I talk too much, or if you don't want to do something, or if you do want to do something. And when they do it for the first time, it's like this, like, tentative, like, timid, like, Miss Mercedes, remember you said – and I'll be like, oh my gosh, you know, like I work with yeah. little kids, so it's a yeah. little bit more exaggerated, but oh my gosh, I completely forgot. You're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. I did say that, you know, let let me follow through on my word. It's such a big thing because then they get this like mm-hmm. proud of themselves kind of assertiveness, little
0: mm-hmm. healthy assertiveness. Body yeah. language.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it and it feels really nice for them to see that someone is really taking into account what they have to say. Mm-hmm. And not being mean about it.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, the next thing here we recommend is to be open to changing your style and to adapt to the situation. I feel like this is a big, strong suit of mine is that if I, and I really trust my level of frustration. If I feel frustrated, that tells me that I need to try something different. Um, and I really listen to my level of, of frustration, not angry frustration, but just like, you know, I want positive outcomes just like the student does. And it's like, you know, everybody else does. Right. Or with any client. Right. So if I if I'm feeling frustrated, that tells me I, I need to switch it up and do something else because I'm not I'm not being helpful. There was a, a student I was working with that um, was not help. I didn't feel like I was being helpful whatsoever. So and I, I felt my level of frustration like increasing, and I could it, I could have you know said let oh, let me bring someone else in because I can't be helpful, but I was like no no let me try one more thing, and that one more thing was something I, I go to a lot, which is I say I tell them. I don't feel like I'm being very helpful. <laughs> I just bring it up, right? And and to me, that's adapting. Like it's what I'm doing has not helped. A, B, and C didn't work. So my last effort is I'm not being helpful for you. Let me be, help you be a part of this process. What can I do differently and, and whatnot? The, the student said, um, I don't like silence and that I was allowing too much silence. And so I ended up using a pretty non-therapeutic intervention, which is these, it's called the team table topics. It's like this cool like box of like cards. And there's just these random questions inside of it. Some of them are like benign. Some of them are more personal about family or some of them are about movies or whatever. But I'm like, all right, let's fill a session up with, with, uh, with for me, basically chit chat. But if that allows me to bring some safe and social cues to you and engage with you and, and have a more of a banter back and forth and to fill the silence in, let's do it. So that was actually really helpful and just using these cards, which reduce the amount of anxiety in the room, reduce the amount of silence in the room. Adapt, figure, like if, if something's not working, trust your frustration level and come at it from a different angle. Collaborate with someone if you need to, consult with a colleague if you need to. And uh, then also being open to learning from your clients. Uh, I learned through this teen table topics thing. Uh, I and I, I learned for that client what was more helpful for them. And now I have something in the future that I can pull from, I have a new um, avenue to help someone. And I I also, like it taught me that even doing something that isn't traditionally therapeutic can be a great way to build rapport, which is therapeutic. Um, So just even the the back and forth co-regulation of safe and social cues, showing curiosity, showing interest, sharing a little bit about myself because I answered a couple of the questions. Uh, but all these things, even though this, the questions weren't necessarily therapeutic, the whole process was therapeutic. So you know, learning from uh, from the clients and through uh, through the process can help, I think, to build your willingness to work with your clients and not to your clients, which will help to bring uh, stronger, safer social cues and help your co-regulation. The next part is oh, you have one.
1: Yeah, this was um. This was an experience for me that I'd like to I like to think of myself as very flexible for the clients. You know, I'll do whatever you need, whatever you want. Just tell me what it is. But I realize that sometimes I fall into the like habits, like patterns of of doing what I do. So, okay, come in, let's talk. Sometimes I'll tell the I'll usually tell the kids first we talk and then we play, because if I let them pick out the game, then they'll pick out definitely non-therapeutic games for the entire time. But I realized that I had got kind of gotten stuck in one of these patterns for myself, like the, like the habit of just like doing the same thing over and over. So I was working with this client. It had been about a year into our relationship. And, and so we had a really strong rapport. And so I, I feel like he felt like he could tell me what he needed to. And, and he did one day and he said, Miss Mercedes, you know, we always come in here and we do the same thing and we talk and we play games, but sometimes I just need to tell you things my way. And I said, Come on, man! Like, give it to me then. And so he did, and it was at, at first I didn't get it because this kid is like a—he was like a storyteller, so like it was like this long, drawn-out thing of like, and then it gets—it it, it would get very fantastical, like outer space and da da da. And I—I I would ask some clarifying questions along the way, and he'd be like, "Wait, let me finish." And I'm like, "Yes, yes, I just want to understand." What I ended up understanding from the whole process, though, was like in his own roundabout way, he finally got to the point. And I did have to add some clarifying questions in there, but it finally got to the place where I understood that what he was describing to me was his own internal process of the anxiety he was experiencing about whatever thing. And I didn't know this about him as far as like, it's not something that I had like identified in him before, but he had a lot of specific anxieties about catastrophical things. For example... Um, like it was a year or two ago that there was like an asteroid or something, a meteor that was so close to hitting to hitting the earth or something like that. And he was asking me all these random questions about space and the, you know, distance of the moon and different things. I'm like, what are you getting at? And he's like, just just listen. And so he did. And I finally understood that this was his way of saying, I, I feel really anxious. I I don't feel safe. I feel like something's going to happen. And it, I was able to listen to him and learn that, like, I just, like this is his way of explaining yeah, what yeah. he can't explain. Yeah. He, he can't get the words out in a way that yeah. makes sense to other people. And in the classroom, it would make the staff really frustrated with him. But I understood that when he was getting to that place, I would pull him from the classroom and say, tell me everything that you need to tell me. And I would be able to decipher what he yeah, was trying yeah. to get at. And it was just a really cool thing to be able to kind of translate his feelings for other people.
0: So talk to us about uh, being transparent as a way to work with your clients.
1: Yes. Um, being transparent is something I fall back on a lot. Um, it, it's, again, everything, I'm just repeating myself at this point, but it's everything we've talked about as far as being being open with them, letting them know the whole process that's happening, that's a cue of safety, you know, predictability and and just all of that. So it's something that I do a lot and I remember over the years having these conversations with other therapists and when I say other therapists is coworkers, people I've worked with. Um some people with beards and glasses? No, it's not you. It's not you. This I know is in the it's past. Me, yeah. <laughs> I know it's not you. Um But you know like you know when when there's downtime or sometimes you have um we used to do group supervision and so we'd have conversations about things that you're doing and and whatever and i would get lots of um i don't want to say like pushback but doubts i guess questions about why why would you say that to the client or why would you tell them that and i would think in my head and sometimes say out loud why not what like what's 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 the damage here? What's the problem? Because if I can tell my client, for example, I'm angry about what happened to you as well. I'm angry for you. Then that gives them that empathy that we were talking about and the validation. Or if I can tell them, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm helping you right now. I don't know that I'm the person that can help you or whatever, then it can help us get unstuck in the therapeutic process if we're stuck, or it can help them open up a little bit to show them a little bit of my own vulnerability in, a, in an appropriate way, not crossing any boundaries. But, you know,
0: like we're talking about co-regulation, co-regulation happens in the here and now. So if if in the here and now, I have, like, I'm at a point where I need to say, like, I'm not being very effective for you. Like, what am I, what can I do better for you next time or whatever? That's in the here and now that that exists right now. That that's completely to me. It's that's totally co-regulation. That's totally a part of co-regulation is being able to handle what's happening in the here and now in a safe and social way. You know what I mean? And, and that might be that I'm not being super right. effective for you as a therapist, or I said this thing earlier, and you know I'm thinking about it right now, and I, I'm worried that I threw things off, or you know, kind of just checking with you about that? You know, as long as you handle it in a safe and social way, and You're not freaking out like that's super. I think that's part of the process of healing is to hear someone else say, I may have messed up and I want to just check in with you about that. How are we doing?
1: And again, doing it in a safe and social way in that moment, because a a similar conversation that reminds the client of of the conversation we're having now, but in, in at home, it would have been really hostile and really violent. But right now with Mercedes, it's really... Calm and safe and respectful and so letting them know that this stuff can happen in a safe way because of the safe and social cues and the Mm -hmm. you know eye crinkles and everything
0: eye crinkles the next way the polyvagal theory applies to the process of therapy is that clients will build their vagal break through basic therapy skills I think we have a little misconception here when it comes to therapy and how people um, become unstuck So these repeated small exposures to safe and social cues builds their tolerance and resilience, which builds their ability to handle distressing content, not the other way around. So recently I shared um, a quote that basically said that just having someone share the trauma story is not super helpful. And it actually can make things a lot worse. And that's because they're being exposed to the trauma all over again. But just saying things out loud doesn't really help. What you need is the safe and social cues. So even if you don't go into the trauma story, you can still get helped by just having safe and social cues. So in therapy, we tend to think that someone sharing the trauma story, even numerous times, that that is what will build their ability to handle it better the next time or to be able to handle more distress next time or to go deeper next time. But it's not sharing the story that helps. It's providing the safe and social cues. It's providing the co-regulation. That's what helps. So as people build their capacity to feel safe, then they'll be able to share the trauma story if they want to. They don't have to. People can get unstuck without actually sharing out loud what the trauma story was. I don't know how many therapists feel comfortable with that idea or doing that, but I tell my clients flat out, you do not have to tell me a darn thing. You don't have to share it out loud, the actual story. I focus more on providing a safe and social space for them, providing safe and social cues. And the more time they spend in their safe and social state, they'll be able to handle dropping down and then coming right back up and dropping down and coming back up. That's the point of therapy, not just to have people disclose difficult things and to get over it. That's not the point. The point is to build their capacity to handle being in a safe and social state so that when they talk about the distressing stuff, they can come right back to it as they drop down the ladder, and I think we've had that the reverse for quite a while in therapy. We, for us, we've, we've placed a lot of emphasis on talking about the difficult stuff versus um, the co-regulation aspect of it and building the vagal break. That's that's really what it is: is the vagal break, as I talked about in one of the early episodes. I don't know which one it was. Um, I want to say six, but doing that just providing safe and social cues and being able to go up and down the ladder that is that will build the person's capacity to handle more distress and that is the vagal break having a stronger safe social system is the vagal break the last thing that I have here is and this is something dr porges said in one of his lectures predictability is a metaphor for safety therapy should be a predictable experience if you if you can predict what's going to happen you're going to feel safer Or at least have a greater sense of control. So being able to predict is, I think, a cue of safety is kind of what he's saying there. Therapy should be a predictable experience. Start and end on time. Be a safe person in the same place. As much as you can, probably in the same place, the same environment. And, you know, where we work, where we've worked in the past, that might not always be doable. But for the most part, I think same place, be a safe person, right? Or no matter where you're at, be a safe person.
1: I think when it's in your control.
0: Yeah. Uh, treatment, like I go to the same schools, but I'll use different rooms just based on what's available. It's just the way it is. Uh, anyhow, yeah. uh, treatment follows what was originally discussed at the outset of treatment, or it can change, that's fine, but it has to be discussed again. Clients should know that treatment will be discussed throughout treatment, and that we don't just do things. Like a lot. You know, a couple of the stories were... Therapist just started doing this EMDR technique out of nowhere. That's not predictability. So that's not a cue of safety. Uh being part of a treatment is the norm. That's a predictability factor that you are a part of treatment. That's that's the standard.
1: That you're involved in the process.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're involved in the process, and that treatment progress is discussed. That not you're just meeting and talking about how bad the week was, and then you meet the next week and talk about how bad the week was. That's not talking about that's not I don't know how super helpful that is but you're talking about how are we doing how how are the you came in here for these reasons how is that going for you are we making an improvement what can we do better next time that you're talking about the process and the progress of treatment regularly i recommend at least once a session talking about how things are going you know as far as the treatment goals or at the end of the session talking about how did i do for you today Uh, feedback. So on that note, feedback should be a regular part of treatment. That could be a predictability thing that uh, they know at the end of every session, they have an opportunity to talk about how that session was for them. So for my sessions at the very beginning, I do something called, well, something I borrowed from, something called the outcome rating scale. It's this evidence-based thing. I built my own version of it, um, just with different language, basically. And uh, I do that at the beginning of each session where they rate their life satisfaction in these four different domains. And then at the end of the session, I do something that's based on something else called the session rating scale. Um, I just changed the wording of it really. But at the end of every session, they have a chance to talk about how the session was for them. And if there's something I need to do better or that they like that I should keep doing. So that's, I have a structure for every session beginning and the end of them are very predictable. And they know when they come in, And if I forget to do like the first part where I ask them the, the four questions about how their life is outside of therapy, they'll be like, Hey, what? You didn't give me the survey thing. You didn't, like they know it's coming right And if i forget to do it right. they'll, they'll say like well where's the thing so um
1: <laughs> i can't imagine you forgetting
0: it happens sometimes i get so excited i just forget <laughs> and then the last thing I, we have here is um, staying within the ethical and legal and moral framework of our jobs can build predictability so therapists there i'm happy that's a word now I'm happy that therapist is a word, Mercedes. Ther- I don't know that it is. It is therapist. We we have <laughs> we have a huge impact on our clients, like enormous. Yes. Um, I had asked the the folks on Instagram, "What's one thing that you would like to say to your therapist, but you won't?" And there was a wide range of responses, but there were some really really touching ones, which I want I want to share a couple of them.
1: There really were. Yeah. It says, I'm so scared of when you tell me it might be time to terminate. You've changed my life and have been such a safety net and facilitator of change in this most profoundly difficult period of my life. Thanks for everything.
0: Another one. I love that. Yeah. Another one is, I love you slash appreciate you so much and wish there was some way to repay you for all you have done. Oh I love that. Another one is, I want to be just like you when I'm a therapist and you're worth every cent. Another one says, he's the best person that ever happened to me. Another positive one, you are changing my life. You're like the mother slash protector I never had. Love you so much. I wish I had a mom like you.
1: Oh, I have one. You saved my life and I could never thank you enough in words, but I want you to know how grateful I am for your help. Oh, I love this.
0: I know it's sweet. I love it. Yeah. Yes. I love you, and sometimes I'm so sad when I have to leave. I never want to come back. Oh,
1: oh so cute. So we oh. have
0: we have such a huge I love these. yeah. We have such a huge impact on our clients. We have to take that really seriously. Mercedes, yes. do you have a personal story you'd like to share?
1: I actually do, Justin. That's so interesting that you asked. Um, it's not interesting. It's on the outline. <laughs> <laughs> Transparency, Justin. There you go. Um, I have a personal story. So I, a while ago, this was years ago, years ago, I worked with a teenage girl who had just, just a horrifying series of traumatic events in her life. She was pretty, she was an older teenager by the time I started working with her. I think I inherited her from another therapist. Um, it was the way it worked when it, I was at a nonprofit agency and, you know, like when people leave, someone else has to take over. And so I took over for the person who had um, been with her before. And so she was pretty jaded. She was old enough to be jaded about therapy and about therapists. And she would tell me, you know, at first, when I first met her, she'd say, you're not going to help me because none of the therapists have helped me. None of the other counselors have ever helped me. So you're not going to help me either. You know, really, just really jaded, really... Negative about the whole thing, and that that was fine. I kind of I met her where she was at. I said, "That's okay. Can we just talk then?" I I won't even, I would tell her I won't even try to help you. Then I'll just I'll warn you when I'm trying to help you or something like that. She thought it was funny, so we ended up um, working together for about a year and a half, maybe I think a year and a half, not quite two years, and then something happened. I can't remember what it was that happened, but we had to terminate therapy kind of before it was time. Maybe I, I, I don't know if I was leaving the agency or if she was moving or something like that. Um, but it was, it was ending. Treatment was ending before it was like proper and ending of treatment. And so we had to say our goodbyes and she, you know, it was sad. It was upsetting. It was hard. She said, I don't know what, I don't know what's going to happen to me. You've helped me so much. Um, you know, just really positive. It, I forgot to say this, but she stopped being jaded. She told me many times that I had helped her after we had gotten to know each other and she felt like I was helping. She told me, you know, you're helping me so much and I am I really am feeling better. And she was really scared when we had to say our goodbyes. And she said, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know if I'm going to make it anymore without you. And, you know, I don't know if, if I assume you do this too, Justin, but I, I think about clients I've had in the past and especially the ones that I couldn't end, which is honestly the majority of them, Um, just for lots of different reasons, the ones that we couldn't end like proper treatment closure. And, um, so I've thought about her over the years and it turned out that there was this string of, uh, like a, what is it? Six degrees of Kevin Bacon, like a string of people that knew someone close to me and someone close to her. And so, and, and this is where I'm going to be vague. So I apologize if it's confusing to follow, but, um, the person close to me said, I ran into so and so in I'll call her A, in A's life. And um and that person told me that she's doing really well, that she's got a job, she's been to college, she graduated college, and that she attributes all of her success to you. And I said, What? And like I'm getting goosebumps right now yeah, remembering I it. Yeah. Um and I said, What do you mean? And and the person close to me said, I don't know, but A's person said that that she's doing really well and that if if the person in her life ever got in contact with me somehow to communicate that message but yeah so that the message to me was you changed my life and I wouldn't be where I am without you she had again she had graduated college and she had gotten a job and overcome all of these barriers in her life and I just was so touched it's so amazing that's awesome. And I love that, you know, I would think about her over the years and you never know if the clients think about you, but they do. And I love that.
0: That's really cool. That reminds me, there was a kid I was working with, same thing, heavy trauma stuff. And uh, I had to leave, the, or I didn't have to. I, I was leaving the setting to go to a new job. She and I were doing uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And trauma-focused comment, blah, blah, blah.
1: TFCBT.
0: TFCBT requires the person, this is before I did all the somatic learning stuff that I'm doing now and polyvagal, this is all pre-polyvagal theory. It involves telling the story numerous times to gain mastery over it. Not something I would do again. But um, at the end of TFCBT, you're supposed to share the story with typically a parent, but really, it's just anyone who's a support person. But typically, it's going to be a parent. For this person, her parent was in her life, but she identified me as the support person she wanted to share the story with, even though she'd already worked on it. Uh, but I was leaving the agency. And so after I had left, it was like a year later, she was working with someone else to complete the TFCBT. And they called me and said, hey, she wants to share the story with you. Because she identifies you as the support person in her life. And it was like a year later. And I was like, hell yeah, I'll be there.
1: Oh, a year after you guys had ended? Oh my gosh. So yeah, the,
0: the new therapist contacted me. And I was like, hell yeah, I'll be there. So I was the support person for her. But it was cool because I allowed myself to not be the therapist, which is really hard. And to be her support person. And like, we hugged. And I don't hug my clients typically. But you know, like I believe we had like hugged, and it was it was like a different sort of feel. And I told her how proud of her I was, and it was more oh. it was more of a support versus you know therapist quote unquote therapist sort of I role. I love that. It so was really much. cool. It was really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Super humbling.
1: Uh, I'm gonna start crying. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, I'm gonna cry out of out of happiness. Uh. <laughs> I did sound like happiness. <laughs>
0: The next series that we're going to do is applying the polyvagal theory to parenting. That's coming up next. This is going to be a big one. People have been waiting and Ooh, waiting and waiting.
1: Parenting. Yes. I've been waiting.
0: It's, I've yeah. been waiting
1: since we did the school series. Since I started.
0: That, well, that's enough. It's it's coming up next.
1: I'm excited, That's going Justin. to be a big
0: one. We'll probably do eh, two or three episodes on that. We'll see. The next announcement. I do have an email list. Ooh. Not something I've pushed at all in the past. But something happened recently where I recorded um, like a solo episode-ish thing. It's like different. And I wasn't sure if I should publish it or not. So what I did first was send it out to everybody on my email list to give them, you know, first dibs at it, kind of hear it out. And then I I asked, hey, what do you think about this? Should I publish it? What changes should I make? So uh, I do have an email list and... If you sign up for it, you might get some exposure to content that may not even make it to the podcast or that is more of like an experimental thing where I kind of want some feedback on it. And uh, so thanks to the people on my email list, I got some feedback. I'll do a couple of tweaks and I'll probably end up publishing that pretty soon. Uh, But yeah, I do have an email list just so you know. Besides that, thank you.
1: Can I be on your email list? I
0: think you already are. (laughs) Mercedes got to hear it. You got to hear the...
1: I know I did. I'm being silly, Justin. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. We really appreciate you, our dear listener. And Justin and I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode in the Trauma Nerds Community Forum. It's the non-therapeutic forum for the Polyvagal Podcast listeners to discuss the episodes with each other.
0: JustinLMFT.com slash forum. Oh, also a link in the show notes just to make it super easy. Because
1: we want you to get there. We hope this episode has had a direct and positive impact on you. If you have a question about anything, feel free to reach out to one of us. We have our contact information in the description where you can also find a link to more detailed show notes. Thank you.
0: Thanks. Bye. School I go to where there's a very loud train that passes by pretty frequently. Well, probably not the same train, but more than one train. I gotcha. Okay.
1: You remember that I work in that same office sometimes, right? Yeah. So, so I've heard the train.
0: More than one train. So, and it's very loud, right? So we can.
1: They again. are very loud, the trains. <laughs>